Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a break from our current sermon series on beliefs and distinctives. As many of you know, since we started this church plant, we've kind of been walking through, right, uh, many of our theological distinctives, uh, and, and that's just kind of laying the groundwork. Uh, we, in order to, to live in a particular way, we've got to know what we believe, right? And if we're going to do life together, it means that we needed to go through and continue to go through some of our beliefs and distinctives. And so uh, that's what we've done. Today we're taking a brief pause from that, actually a three-week pause, and we'll be getting into a, an Advent series. And then after the Advent series, we'll, we'll finish up the, the series on beliefs and distinctives. And then right after that, we're going to be getting into the book of Galatians, Lord willing, in January. But for today and for the next three weeks, it's about Advent. It's about preparing our hearts to celebrate Christmas. Advent is a season of of hope and celebration, and we want to do that this morning, and we want to do that in the days ahead. And of course, we want to do that every single day of the year. But but this time right now, this time of the year is where we get to emphasize that. And really, what, what this sermon series is all about in this message it's about seeing that our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. And so that's going to be the, the reminder that you're going to be hearing over and over and over again. So with that said, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of John chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, the, no problem. The text will be on the screen just right behind me here. You can read along there. I'm going to be reading through verses 1 to 18. But I want to let you know this, even though we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 18 of John 1, I'm actually going to be focusing in on, in this sermon, on one verse, verse 14. And there's a reason for that, and in a moment here I'll show you why that is. But for right now, let's, let's begin to read God's Word to us this morning, beginning in verse 1. Here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But it says here, they were born of God. Here's... Here's the money verse for this morning, verse 14. This is what we're going to hang our hat on this morning. And the Word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from the fullness, from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, while I was preparing for this sermon series, in this sermon, I, I simply asked the question, it was kind of a lead-in before I read the text, what is hope? It's a simple question, but it's a good question. What is hope? I asked the question because during this Christmas season, hope is one of those verbs that gets thrown around a lot. It, there's various, there's other ones as well, like, you know, we throw around peace and, and hope, and you, we see them on the, all over the signs, and we, we have ornaments on our tree that say hope and peace. And this shouldn't be surprising, right, that, we, that the word hope gets thrown around a lot. It shouldn't be surprising at all. We, we live in a world longing for an understanding of hope. For example, people can find hope in other people. Happens all the time. Uh, people can find hope in ideas, right? Just go, go into the philosophical realm. I, people cling to ideas, uh, people can find hope in governments. Why do you think we vote? Right? We, we vote because we hope that our circumstances will be better than they currently are by electing in another party or a particular candidate. That's why we vote, because there's, there's hope attached to the ballot. Uh, we hope in our favorite sports teams, right? Uh, I hope every spring, spring training, that the Chicago Cubs are going to win the World Series. I do. I'm like, I'm getting ready, and I'm looking at the lineup, and I'm looking at who's in AAA and who's going to get called up, and how's this all going to work in this marathon of a season that we call baseball, right? And I hope at the end of it, the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series. Uh, we also hope in our own self-sufficiency, just pull up the bootstraps, I'm going to get it done, and I hope I can get it done, right? And those are just a few examples of things that we hope in. So why do people hope? Why do people hope? Now, here, here's, here's my explanation of why people hope, and I'm sure there's better ways to say it, but this is what I came up with. People hope because there is an inherited internal desire or expectation that life can be better than the current circumstances. Things can be better than what they currently are. And so we hope. We hope because... We look around and see brokenness everywhere. We see hopelessness everywhere. And so we hope for something better. The Bible tells us a lot about hope. Here's one of those more memorable passages in the Bible about hope. It's from the book of Hebrews. Now, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so the reason why Christians can have hope, especially during 
the Advent season is because our faith is the foundation of our hope in God. And this morning we're going to see from John 1, and we're going to see in the next two weeks, three weeks, that our faith gives birth to hope because of the birth of a child. This morning I want you to see why we, why Christians, can have true, ultimate, and everlasting hope in, in Jesus. So before narrowing in on verse 14, now this is the reason why I read verses 1 through 18, I have to explain several truths about the verses preceding and right after verse 14. There's some context going on and going along with verse 14. Before the incarnation, which is what verse 14 is about, before the birth of Christ, before Christ came in the flesh, Christ was always with God and he was God, verses 1 and 2. I highlight this point because it makes the birth of Jesus Christ all the more amazing. I mean, think about it. Jesus was not just a man who was tapped by God to be a good man. He, you know, it wasn't God, God was up in the heavens and he just, hey, I, I need someone to die for, for uh, the sins of all these people. Uh, I'm going to pick that guy and I'm going to have that guy right there. Uh, yeah, you, 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 your name is Jesus. Yeah, you, Jesus, you, you just, I want you to live a good life. I want you to be a good example. That, that's not what God did. God also didn't merely take over a person spiritually in order for that person to live out God's marching orders, right? Uh, God the Son didn't simply put on a space suit. You know, it, it, it's like, you know, we just, we just give him this suit and, and, and then we want this person to live out a good life again. And that's called Arianism, right? It... it, it Raises up the divinity of the person, but really wants to dismiss the humanity of the person. No. God's love for his people is infinitely more. God, the word, became flesh and dwelt among his people. What this means is that God, the creator of the world, took on flesh with a plan and with a purpose. Because we know that the path of suffering and death awaited God, this revelation, once again, should be all the more stunning and amazing. Listen, you got to get this if you want to get God. God created the universe. You are a part of his creation. And it is God who, has, who had a plan and a purpose for you and for the world. If true, if what I am saying is true, and we are talking about very significant issues this morning. And because we live in a world where hopelessness abounds, it would be good to know where we can place our ultimate hope here. Uh, here here's a little more context before we dial into verse 14. Uh, also intentionally mixed in with these various truths, we read about a person who was a witness to the word. John the Baptist, who is different from the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel. John the Baptist was a man called by God to preach a message of repentance and baptism in order to prepare people for the coming Messiah. What this means is that God didn't just show up on the scene. Poof! Like it just appeared. No, that's not what happened at all. Actually, the Old Testament promises that a Messiah was going to come. And John the Baptist is the last of a line of prophets who preached before God came in the flesh. 
the various prophetic voices in the Bible, and specifically now here, I'm going to talk about in the Old Testament, show us the plan of God which becomes revealed in Christ. And John the Baptist, what we read in John 1, is just bearing witness to that particular prophetic voice. We hear promises from the prophetic voices in the Bible, then we see the fulfillment of the prophetic voices. We will see more of this in the weeks ahead, but hear this from the prophet Isaiah. The Lord himself, years and years and years and years before the birth of Christ, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then just two, just two chapters later, we read this. For to us, a child is born. We just sang those lyrics this morning. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can hear the hope in these two passages. It's a hope that cannot be found in what the world offers. It's a hope that can only come from God. It's the hope that we read in verse 14 of John 1, right? It's not an overstatement to say that John 1, 14, chapter 1, verse 14, is one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. Now, I can be prone to overstatement. I've been guilty of that. But this is not an overstatement. This is one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. And it's also the fulfillment of what I just read from the prophet Isaiah. Here it is again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Wow. The word God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man. When the word became flesh, God became man. Without ceasing for a moment to become divine, God the Son united to himself a full human nature and became an authentic human person. D.A. Carson rightly says, this is the supreme revelation. (laughs) You want to know God? Here you go. This is the supreme revelation. If we are to know God, neither rationalism nor irrational mysticism will suffice. You can put your PhD away. You want to logically figure this one out? Good luck. For the former reduces God to a mere object, and the latter abandons all controls. God is not a mere object, and God has chosen to make himself known through the incarnation, through the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it is in and through the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, where we can find hope. Here's why. Here are are reasons why. Let's Let's get down to the brass tacks here. Why can we have hope? 
here are three reasons why we can have hope in the word that became flesh. Number one, it is in God becoming man where God identifies with humanity, which is profound and has massive implications. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Number two, it's in Christ where God reveals his glory to humanity. In a moment, we'll look at the Old Testament to see how God revealed his glory to man and why the glory of God being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is a monumental grace. And then finally, number three, third point, where we, third reason why we can find our hope in Jesus, it's in Christ where God reveals the path of reconciliation and salvation. And it's in this last point in which our hope is punctuated. So we've got identification, Number one, glory, and then salvation. These reasons why are why we can have hope in God. Look with me at these three points from this one verse. God chose to make a statement when the word became flesh. Uh, have you ever tried to make a big statement before? You send out the email blast, throw, throw a couple of posts on social media, perhaps when you want to make a profound or big statement, you have a couple friends over, Uh, to the house and divulge information, right? Uh, God's statement here is that he's going to identify with you in every way except sin. God did not identify with my dog, Winston. No matter how much I love my dog, Winston, he is indeed man's best friend. Love that dog. God did not identify with him. He didn't identify with the oak tree in my backyard. The God of the Bible is not pantheistic. God identifies with man. And this makes sense because God created man and woman in his image. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. There is not a more personal way for God to engage and identify with humanity than for the word to become flesh. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, had options to describe the birth of Jesus. He could have said in verse 14 that the word became man, simply Adam in the Greek. That that was a plausible way to describe what was going on, perhaps. Uh, He could have said, or the word took on body, the word for body in the Greek again, soma. But he chose the crude word flesh, sarks in the Greek, because John wanted to say that God took on all the attributes that come with being a human being. For God to take on flesh meant that he took on the whole person with all of its frailty and all of its vulnerability. A theologian from the, from the 4th century, Athanasius of Alexandria, said, and other folks have used this phrase in church history, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. Meaning... For God's elect to be saved, God's plan needed to include the word to take on all that the flesh had to offer. And not only did God take on flesh, but he dwelt among his image-bearing, sin-stained creation. Now, we have a more difficult time understanding the, the profundity of God dwelling among his people than many first, our first century hears. Uh, the religious cl- climate in the first century would have rejected such an idea that God came in the flesh. Not only that, that God, that God come in the flesh dwelt, right? 
For example, in the minds of the first century Greeks, a clear separation was made between the divine spirit, right, the spiritual realm, and the mundane physical world. The spirit world and the physical world were irreconcilable opposites. The two just simply did not mix in their minds. However, the Christian revolution in message is that God cares so much for his creation. He cares so much for his creation that he indeed dwells with his people. We, we read a glimpse of this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people through the tabernacle. If you, if you read through the first five books of the Bible, particularly when you get to Exodus, you're going to bump into this idea that there's a tabernacle. There's, it's also called the, the tent of meeting, Exodus 25. If you're trying to figure out what I'm talking about, go there. It, it, it was the central place tabernacle, the central place of worship for the Jews, and it was a place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. The tabernacle, this is why it's significant, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a visible sign of Yahweh's presence among his people. And this is exactly what John is communicating in verse 14 when he uses the word dwelt. John is keenly aware of his history. John is literally saying that God is tabernacling among his people. And God's presence is now made available through Christ. Jesus is now the locus of God's dwelling. The tabernacle and the temple are no longer needed. What does this mean for us? It means that we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. A result of the birth of Jesus is that Jesus understands your pain, your suffering, your hardship, your struggles. He understands that. What did you come here today with? What kind of struggles are you working through? What kind of pain have you endured? Suffering. Jesus sympathizes with you. And he bids you to come to him just as you are, regardless of your past and present struggles and sin. In the flesh, Jesus said this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What have you brought with you this morning that you can give to Christ? The miracle of Christmas is that God condescended to our level so that we can have hope 
no matter our circumstances. The second reason why we can have hope in the word that became flesh is because we can now see the glory of God. Here's the latter part of verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word for glory, doxa, is a word used to denote the visible, so you can see it, right? The visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. Again, the Old Testament tabernacle is where the manifestation of God's self-disclosure was present. Exodus 40, verses 33 and 35, 34 and 35, tells us that when Moses completed the construction of the tabernacle, and here, here's, here's that verse, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As a result of this, Moses could not enter the tabernacle because of the glory of God. If the idea of taking on flesh was an obstacle to the Greeks, God revealing his glory in a man was equally deplorable to the Jews. But this is once again the miracle of John 1.14. God, the creator of the universe, now grants access to his glory through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.16 explicitly states, this is a wonderful verse to memorize. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. In, in, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we read of how the word came into time, history, and tangibility so that the glory of God would be perfectly displayed. The remainder of the Gospel of John is about God's glory on display. Jesus displayed his glory by turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, John 2. Jesus healed a public official's son, John 4. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, John 5. Over 5,000 people were fed with what? Five barley loaves and two fish? John 6. Jesus gave a blind man sight, John 9. And the glory of Jesus was on display when he restored Lazarus to life, John 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Everywhere Jesus went, the glory of God was on display, and his glory was full of grace. It was full of truth. You know, just reading this through made me think of this. We are so prone to seek our own glory, right? Um, in, in other words, because of sin, people have a bent to seek, to seek glory for themselves by turning back everything in on themselves. We turn everything in back in ourselves. I, I, I can't tell you how many times like someone tells me a story, and all of a sudden I hear that story, and I got a better story that I want to tell right? I'm trying to like almost like one-up the conversation. Ah, you, that's a good story, but listen to this, right? <laughs> Next time you, you watch an interview on the news or, or an interview from like an athletic event, uh, just, just count how many times the person being interviewed uses the first person singular, right? Look at me. Look what I did. All these good things happening, guess what? They're because of me. I, 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 me, me, me. Because of our sin nature, we are glory mongers, which means if you don't want to be a glory monger, you need God. And get this, 
God, in his kindness, not only shows us his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, he shares his glory with his elect people. And so the next time you do something remarkable, it's not, look at me. It's actually, look at God who's in me. All, all glory belongs to God for what's being done. When you are in Christ, God's glory is on display through your life, all because of Christ. When you are in Christ, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is at work in you to be reflectors and refractors of God's glory. Brothers and sisters, we need to live with the purpose to bring glory to God. Right? Through faith, and through faith, we have the ability to be Christ-like and to display the glory of God to the world all because the Word became flesh. So we can have hope because God identifies, identifies with us. We can have hope because of God's glory is now on display through Christ and we refract, refract and reflect that glory. And third, we can have hope in the incarnation of Jesus Christ because it is in the incarnation where God was creating a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. Admittedly, I'm taking some interpretive liberty from verse 14 by making my third point. However, we have the ability to look back to the prophetic voices of the Old Testament and to look ahead in the New Testament to know that when the word was made flesh, the mission of God was at work. Here's a well-known passage, just two chapters later in the Gospel of John, right? You see this on the t-shirts and the signs at the stadiums or or sports, or, or football is being played, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must realize that the incarnation of Christ was leading to our justification because of Christ. <coughs> we can't celebrate Easter without bringing the incarnation to bear upon Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. We can't celebrate Christmas this Christmas season we can't celebrate it without connecting the incarnation with the crucifixion. When we look at the manger scene, right? You, you see it at the stores. You, can, you might have it at home. You got the manger scene. You got prars next to the tree, right? When you look at the manger scene, we should remember the hope that is found in God because God took on flesh. But we should also remember the cost of ultimate hope. What was the cost? The hope we have in God cost God the Father, His one and only Son. And Christ came into a sinful world, lived a sinless life, and died a gruesome death so that you could have hope. Remarkable. It's amazing when you stop and think about it. 
And finally, all the hope we have in God because of the birth of Jesus Christ should lead us to adoration this Advent season. Let's let's be a people that is worshiping God, adoring God. We need to be celebrating what God has done in Jesus Christ. You know, the challenge we run into every Christmas season, right, is that we need to cut through the noise, the expectations, right? I mean, there's always expect- expectations connected with Christmas. You've got to make plans. You've got to go there. People are coming to your house, presents, the whole thing. We've got to cut through the sensationalism of Christmas. Why? So that we can focus on Jesus. I, I'm not saying that you should not put up the tree and lights or nix the Christmas traditions, right? We love Christmas traditions at the Powers household. One is that I always cut down a tree and I drag it from in the tree lot and throw it on the truck and everyone watches me do that, right? That's one of the traditions we have. And deep down inside, I love it, right? Um, even though I complain about it a little bit at the time, I love it. And I enjoy the Christmas lights that are in my, uh, my home office, right? What I'm not saying is that, what, excuse me, what I am saying is that with all the hoopla, it's all meaningless without Jesus. It's all meaningless without the word that became flesh. It's just meaningless. W- without Christ, what, what are we doing? I want to end with um, part of a poem written in 1851. It's just 23 words, but it reminds me of the miracles and hope that is found in Jesus Christ. It it goes like this. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. The world's greatest hope. Listen, this is the whole point right here. The world's greatest hope is in the word that became flesh. Ultimate and lasting hope is only found in Jesus who came down to such a world as this. Let us pray.